Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. It's a beautiful day out there, isn't it? So I have a confession. We're going to start things off getting serious and getting real. So there's a part of me that really enjoys, probably overly enjoys, stories of arrogant people being humbled. I don't know if there's anybody else that feels that way. I'm not saying it's necessarily a good way to feel. I'm just saying it feels good. That's all I'm saying. And I saw a story this week that kind of scratched that itch for me. It came from a guy who worked in IT for a number of years. Uh, and he came into work and he had this coworker who was one of those know-it-all people, smartest guy in the room, I obviously know more than you do kind of folks, you know what I'm talking about. And so he came into work and he saw this know-it-all coworker having trouble getting his computer monitor to come on. And he just, he would tap it, and he'd push the buttons, and he'd wiggle cables and kind of jostle it and like would do all this typical stuff to just kind of try to get it to turn on like you're, you know, banging on the side of a TV or something. And he did this for about 10 minutes. And that's when the guy telling the story, he interjected and he said, hey man, do you need some help with something? And this know-it-all coworker just went on this rant for about 10 minutes about how he had worked in computers his whole life and how he didn't need help. And if I can't figure it out, there's no way you can figure it out and rah, 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 rah. Just kind of one of those situations. And the guy telling the story just let him get it all out and spew everywhere. And then when he was finished, he said, look, hey, my bad. I just thought monitors had to be plugged in in order for them to turn on. But you know more than I do. So. And at that, the know-it-all coworker looked down at the power strip and just turned beet red from embarrassment because, indeed, the monitor had been unplugged the entire time. Even trying to mess with anything. I loved that story. There's like a smug sense of satisfaction that comes from that. I'm not saying that's a good way to feel. I'm just saying I'm human too and it feels good. And so like you read those stories, but I look at that story and I think this could have played out so differently. Like if the know-it-all had just said, well, thanks, I appreciate your help, but I'm going to keep plugging away. Or if, if he had any other attitude, this could have been an entirely different story. I probably wouldn't have even shared it. But instead... It's a wonderful example of that age-old, timeless proverb, pride goeth before the fall, you know? How we think of ourselves, our own self-perceptions, whether they be accurate, whether they be inflated, whatever, that has real-life impact and real-world consequences. Sometimes the way we think of ourselves, our own self-perception has positive consequence. Sometimes it has detrimental consequence. Sometimes, as we saw in the story, it could be very embarrassing consequences for us. But the way we think about ourselves matters a great deal. In fact, how we think in general matters a great deal. This message this morning, this is part two of a series we started last week called Mindfield. We have this battle of ideas being waged in our minds. On the one hand, we have a series of ideas and presuppositions that we have inherited just because of when and where we live and, and you know, the nature of living on earth. On the other hand, we have this, this idea, this series of presuppositions and truths that are revealed to us from God's Word, what He tells us in Scripture, what we come to learn through the gospel, that lens. And we have these ideas just kind of battling in our minds. In fact, our theme verse for this whole series kind of sums that idea up is Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. That's the theme verse for this whole series, and it kind of captures that idea very well. On the one hand, you have the pattern of this world, 
where we were raised and how we are taught to think versus this renewed mind, this way of learning how to think differently according to God's truth. And you and I are caught in the middle trying to discern what's what and how do we live and think and view life around us in a God-honoring way, a way that is true. That's what this series is all about, and today we're going to begin tackling a series of ideas that are inherent to this pattern of thinking in the world. One of them has to do with self-perception, what we talked about earlier, those ways that we view and think about ourselves and whether they're accurate, inflated, and, or whatever. We're going to call this idea autonomous individualism. So what is autonomous individualism? Well, we can break that word down. Autonomous has to do with the freedom to live according to your own sense of self. Individualism is the principle of independence or self-reliance. So you take those two ideas and you smack them together, and essentially we're talking about this mindset or this understanding of ourself, that I will live my life the way I deem it to be right and true because I think that's good based upon standards that I came up with and criteria that I created. There's a lot of eyes in that statement, you may notice. And we could even sum that up even closer, just say, I am the ultimate authority in my own life. I am the final arbiter of what is true, of what is real, of what is valid. I have ultimate authority in my life. And this is a perspective that's very common and part of sort of the, the foundation of so much of how we think in our particular culture in this day and age and at this time. And it's a mindset that leads us to think that we can come up with our own sense of truth. There is no objective truth to speak of. There's only my truth. And maybe you've heard that phrase before, or you've come up against that in conversation. You're like, what do you mean my truth? And so on. This is where that idea, idea comes from. I forgot it in my office, but typically this is where I would hold out a globe. <laughs> uh, and I'd say as an object illustration, if I had a globe in my hand, this would be a good demonstration of an object of truth. That globe features the nations of the earth, and if I had every other opinion on it, or if I had never existed, that globe is still going to depict the nations of the earth. It is what it is, it says what it says, and I have no impact or influence on that. That is an objective reality. It exists outside of myself. But you and I, we're probably going to have different perspectives on that objective reality based on where we're sitting. Like, if I'm looking at a globe right here, I'm probably going to be looking at, like, North and South America. You wouldn't see that. Sitting where you are, you would see, like, Asia and Africa and so on. And so we see that truth from different perspectives based on where we're seated, right? And that's kind of the way that life works in a Christian worldview. God created truth. He created reality. It is what it is, and it always will be that, regardless of any thought, feeling, or opinion we have about it. But we probably see His truth, or we see life from different perspectives based on where we're situated. If you grew up in a, an urban environment with a troubled home in poverty and you were discriminated against, you're probably going to see life and truth very differently from me who grew up in a rural, or, yeah, rural setting with a leave-it-to-beaver family like it didn't really have anything bad happen. We're going to have different perspectives on that truth, on that objective reality. But here's the great news. We can talk to one another about this truth. And you can tell me about your perspective and your upbringing. I can tell you about my perspective and my upbringing. We're probably going to find some truths that are going to help us better understand this world and its whole picture because it exists outside of ourselves. It's not something we made up. 
And if we were to go back to our example, you tell me about Africa and Asia, I'll tell you about North and South America, we're going to have a better example of that globe in the whole picture, because objective truth is out there for us to discover together. But this autonomous individualism, it leads us to a very different approach and a very different conclusion. If I hold out that globe and I see North and South America, that is the globe. You may not see that. You may see Africa and Asia, but that's your globe. I'm glad that works for you, but that's not my globe. That's not my truth. My truth is right here what I see. This is all of it. In other words, we're going to have very different understandings about life in our own individual worlds and our own individual truths and our own individual realities. Autonomous individualism is a very individualistic way to think, but that's at the kind of undercurrent or the foundation of much of our worldview. So you can see how this is, is kind of problematic and troublesome, because in a biblical worldview, we say that there is an ultimate authority. It's not us. It's God. He created the world. He tells us what the truth is. He reveals reality, and it is what it is because He made it to be so. With autonomous individualism, we kind of say, well, no, this is my view. This is my world. This is my truth. I'm the final arbiter of what that is. And that can lead to some moral relativism. That's a, a conversation for next week's message. But today we're going to be talking about the idea of, of truth and authority and what the relationship between those two things is. I hope you brought your thinking caps this morning or at the very least had an extra cup of coffee because we're going to be thinking a little deeper today as we talk about the way we think about life and identity in the world around us. So this is autonomous individualism in a nutshell. How is this part of the pattern of this world? How does this show up in the thinking of the world around us? We're going to get to how we individually might embody this in a little bit, but just in general, how do we see this at play in the world? Well, like all great and prevailing ideas, it doesn't just pop out of nowhere. There's a long history of ideas and thinkers and philosophies that got us to this point, and that's part of why it's so deeply embedded in the recesses of our thinking is because it's a long development. But I don't think most of us are probably interested in that. Maybe you guys actually are. You're the crowd that would be like, yes, I think I would like to hear that. Second service, not so much. So, <laughs> but this is probably how we're going to go about this instead. We're going to look at how it shows up specifically in our culture, kind of pick the low-hanging fruit that's easy to see so we get the gist of it. And if I think about, okay, what's the most obvious example of autonomous individualism in our culture today? It's probably going to be the conversation that's ongoing about the redefinition and expansion of gender identity in our culture. It's a very individualistic focus. If we were to have a conversation about gender a few decades ago, we'd probably need two words, male and female. We would all understand that there are some rare instances of ambiguity, but two words would suffice. But if you were to have a conversation about gender identity today, you would need many, many, many more words. You could be cisgendered, you could be transgendered, you could be bigendered, you could be gender fluid, you could be gender queer, you could be uh, omnigendered, you could be pangendered, you could be bigendered. You, there's a whole list of terms, all of them referring to some varying degrees of discomfort with traditional male-female gender norms. You could even be xenogendered, which would insinuate that you don't even identify as human. You have a human body, but you identify as an animal or a plant or a vampire or a machine, and there's, there's a growing body of academic literature actually around that subject. It's kind of surprising. And so we might say, okay, that's, that's identity, that's gender. Why is that such a big deal? Why does it matter? Why can't people just, you know, identify how they want to identify? They're not hurting anybody. 
Well, because that idea of, of growing gender identity, redefining who I am according to narrowing uh, understandings and ever, ever more individualistic notions has far-reaching consequences. It teaches us that we are autonomous individuals. I have the authority to define truth and reality and validity around how I feel at any given moment. And this isn't like an oversimplification of it. There's a, a therapist, she operates out of Minnesota at the Center for Sexual Wellness. Uh, her name is Jackie Golob. In an interview with Women's Health Magazine, here's how she spoke about gender identity and the redefinition of it. She says, gender identity can change over time and it's not fixed. Just because you identify one way at one point in time does not mean you will always choose that identity or that your identity won't shift and evolve. So in other words, this very central idea of who I am, the truth about who I am, this reality about who I am, it is defined by me and my criteria and how I feel at any given moment, and I can change that at any given moment because it's my life and my truth. Do you see how there's that idea of I have the ultimate authority in my life to declare what is true, what is valid, and what is real? This isn't a judgment statement. That's a whole other conversation on that. That's just how we got to this point. And that goes beyond just individuals and gender identity. That goes into relationships. This overflows into that as well. Because if you have an expansion and a redefinition of, of gender and individual identity, you're also going to have an expansion of sexual identity because people are relational creatures. And those two are not the same, by the way, gender and sexual identity, but they're, they're like cousins. They're always in conversation. And so the same thing. It's no longer just a simple list of terms that we used to use. You, today you could be heterosexual, you could be homosexual, you could be bisexual, you could be asexual, you could be uh, 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 omnisexual. You could be, there's a whole growing list of vocabulary terms. Each of them refers to an ever-increasingly specific notion of how I particularly feel I am attracted to another person. And even that isn't the end of the story because that is a relational endeavor in and of itself. And so relationship structures begin to grow and change and shift. And so you can have a monogamous relationship, you can have an open or non-monogamous relationship, you can have a polygamous relationship, you can have a polyamorous relationship. And again, a growing list of ever-increasingly narrow and specific terms to identify how I feel I am best represented and I identify at this particular moment in time and place. I have the ultimate authority in my life to determine what is true and what is valid and what is real. Now, my whole point in this is not to have a, a message on gender identity, sexual identity, family structures, any of that stuff. Those are conversations that are more nuanced for a different time. But this is an example from our culture today of how this idea of autonomous individualism plays out and the real-world consequences it has. I hope that's clear from our, our conversation here. I also hope it's clear that as we look at those consequences and we look at what this ideology produces, that we can see that that isn't exactly in line with a biblical perspective on things like identity and sexuality and relationship and family structures. Scripture seems to have a very different idea of those things, and it's not an idea that is rooted in how I feel at any particular time or my emotions or whatever. Instead, it's rooted in an authority that is outside of myself. In fact, that idea, we're going to get out of order just a little bit, just heads up, we're off the rails this morning. That idea is actually stated just a few verses before our theme verse Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where it talks about the reforming of how we think and the renewal of our minds. If we were to back up to Romans eleven thirty six, 
two verses. This is what it says. For uh, from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. It's a confession of who God is. For through him and in him and for him are all things. In other words, he is the originator of the universe. He is the creator. And he actually has authority over his creation. It's for him. The glory is for him. Truth and reality and validity, it's defined by God. He is the ultimate authority, not me. So we have this conflict of ideas here. And really, it's not an old conflict. If we were to just go back to the very beginning of Scripture, we'd find that this idea of autonomous individualism goes hand in hand with the oldest sin in the book. Here's where we get back on track, Steve. If we were to go back to Genesis chapter 3, here's the story. God creates mankind. He puts the man and the woman in the garden. He says, you guys are free to do whatever you want. Just don't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, if that's our only commandment, there's only one temptation to have. And so the serpent shows up, and he tempts Eve, and he says, Eve, you got to eat this fruit. It looks really good. She says, no, I won't eat from the tree because certainly we'll die. And, And Satan says, no, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So if I could expand on that passage just a little bit. No, you won't die, Eve. God is withholding from you. If you throw off his authority and become an autonomous individual, then you will be like God, knowing for yourself good and evil. An autonomous, individualistic person who is the ultimate authority who defines what is true and good and right in their life. This is the same mindset, the same temptation that mankind has always dealt with. It's the desire to be God. I decide what is true. I decide what is right. I decide what is valid. I decide what is real. It's my truth, my life. I'm in control. You see, this is the problem with the autonomous individualistic mindset that's so common in our way of thinking in today's world and culture. It stands in direct conflict with a biblical confession of who God really is. I can't say out of one corner of my mouth, I believe in God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, who stands in authority over all his creation, and then out of the other corner of my mouth say, except for me, because I'm the final arbiter of truth in my life and I hold ultimate authority. Those two ideas are oil and water. They do not mesh. We have a serious problem here. An age-old problem, but a serious problem nonetheless. So that's how this shows up in our cultural framework, just a few ways. And you can probably, if you sit down with a cup of coffee and think about it, think of numerous ways in which this desire to be God, to be the final arbiter of truth, has shown up in our society and why things look the way they look and why people live the way they live and why we experience the pain that we experience. Because when you try to be God, you run into an awful lot of problems. So how does this show up in our lives, specifically? That's probably where our curiosity lies. And what we want to be aware of as people of faith and people of the gospel, because pursuing a renewed mind means identifying this tendency, this pattern of the world and our own ways of thinking. And there are countless ways that this shows up in our own personal lives, in our own experiences. We can probably take some cues from the book of Romans and pinpoint a few of them. Uh, If we were just to go one verse down after our theme verse, so our theme verse is chapter 12, verse 2, let's just go to verse 3 and see what the Apostle Paul has to say. 
He says, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, as if you're God or something, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. It's this warning against pride, against arrogance, that same sort of inflated sense of self-importance that we saw at that beginning story where the guy thought he really knew something, right? Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Well, that kind of sounds like autonomous individualism, too. Really, what we're talking about is this age-old sin, autonomous individualism. It's just a $5 word for pride. Pride infiltrates our way of thinking. It infiltrates our mindset. It inflates our sense of self-importance to where I am an ultimate authority. In Paul's case, people were thinking more highly of themselves than they ought to instead of in accordance with sober judgment. And it was materializing in the Roman church in a particular way. They were judging each other off of spiritual gifts. Some people had some different spiritual gift for service in the church. Other people had a different spiritual gift for service in the church. And there's this tendency to look down on people and create this criteria or the schematic or this framework where some gifts are more important, some are less important because this guy preaches or teaches or leads as an elder, and this guy just like is merciful and is generous, you know. And we sometimes can do the same thing. We can create these frameworks of who's important or what's important or what's admirable and what's dismissible. It's probably not going to be around the object of, or the idea of, of spiritual gifts in a church. It could be the idea of you know, what career does somebody have. Well, this guy's a doctor or a lawyer, so he's very more important, and we've got to treat him well, and this guy, well, he doesn't do any of that. So. Or it could be the amount of money that somebody makes. They make a lot of money, so we've got to listen to what they say, and their ideas are more important than this guy that doesn't make as much. It could be around an idea of education. This person has a certain degree, and so they're more respectable than this person. It could be around nationality. This person was born here, and they speak English, and this person, they immigrated, and so maybe they don't know. Sometimes we do that. It might be a judgment about uh, manners or lack thereof. This person's well-mannered and speaks well and minds their P's and Q's, and so they're admirable, and this person, he's a little rude or rough around the edges, and so we dismiss them. It could be accomplishments. Look at what this person has done. They built a business. They're in a marathon, you know, whatever. We have all of these ideas, these criteria that we adopt as people that sometimes it's tempting to say, well, this person's really something. And these make-believes, you know, frameworks, strata that we create are all things that are equally unimportant and unimpressive before God, and yet there's this tendency maybe to judge people in our arrogance as if we define what's true and real and valid, or, or we hold some sort of ultimate authority to do that in our lives. Maybe that's one way that this materializes in our own lives. Or maybe it's in our relationship with other authorities in our lives. You know, if, if I'm the ultimate authority... If I'm the one that ultimately decides what's true and real and valid for my life, well, what are these other authorities trying to tell me? You know, like the, the, the law, who, you know, I'm going to drive 45 in this 30. Who are they to tell me how fast to drive, right? Or, you know, I know I'm supposed to pay my taxes and I'm supposed to do this and do that, but you know what? They're not going to catch me. Those taxes aren't just anyway. I'm just going to cheat on my taxes just a little bit. Maybe there's this temptation to, to buck government authority, which maybe is why Paul talks about that in the very next chapter of Romans, chapter 13. After this conversation of pride and judgment of others, he goes on in chapter 13, verse 1, to say this, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God, 
And consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. He finds like three different ways to say the same thing. There's this God-ordained authority placed over our lives. It's the institution of government. We may not like them. They may not always be just or so on, but that institution is a God-ordained authority put there for a reason, not for us to ignore, not for us to, in our autonomous individualism, assume that my will is more important or to assume that I'm somehow an exception to the laws of this land and so they're, they're not really applicable to me. In each and every one of those mindsets, those instances, we set ourselves up for failure and pain and problems. Because there is an authority, a God-ordained authority established, and it is not us. Or maybe it's a parental authority. I guess I'm just going to look at this table over here for you guys this morning. But this is an issue, and I think we'll all kind of laugh and chuckle at this, but sometimes there's this temptation, guys, to overlook a parental authority. And to think, well, I, I know better, or, you know, I've got it figured out, or, you know, I, I know what's best for me, and my parents, well, they don't know anything, they, they're old, right? You guys have never thought that, I know, but sometimes there's a temptation to think that way. I always make a joke, you guys I know will agree with me in here, it's amazing how much we forget when we move out of the house for the first time into the world and have to experience life on our own. And I phrase it that way, because like when you're 16, 17, 18 years old, you got it all figured out, right? You know everything about the world and the way that it works and how it's all supposed to go. You know it all. And then this mystical amnesia settles in the moment you move out and get that first water bill. And you're like, I, what? I don't understand what's going on. We just forget so much, right? <laughs> you know, of course, it's not the way it is. God has something to say about parents. Guys, and it's pretty important. He actually says it in the book of Ephesians. He says it in chapter 5. Sorry, chapter 6. He says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. It's one of the Ten Commandments that has a promise attached to it. That promise is in the Old Testament. In the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5, it says that your days may be extended and that it may go well with you which is a way of saying that you might live a long time and that you'll experience benefit in life. Because there is a benefit that comes upon us when we honor a parental authority in our lives, a God-ordained authority, by the way. And that's an important message to know as young people because this is another way we're tempted to be autonomous individuals. I am the ultimate authority in my life. I'll decide what's right, what's true, and so on, when God has already put authorities in place to guide us for our benefit and our good if we'll just humble ourselves underneath them. Or maybe at the heart of all of this is our propensity to rebel against a divine authority. That really is the root cause. It's that Genesis 3 scene all over again. You will be like God, knowing for yourself good and evil. We have this tendency to rebel against divine authority, even if we know that it's good and true and right for us. How many times have we thought or uttered this phrase, I know what the Bible says, but I think dot, 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 dot. That is the rally cry, the catchphrase of the autonomous individual. I know what this God-instituted truth and revealed truth is, but here's what I think. 
as if my view of things, my understanding of reality and truth is somehow greater or more authoritative than the word of the author and the creator of life itself. I've got it all figured out. Psalm 14.1, it starts off, he says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. And that's true. But I like to expand on that, and I say, maybe the bigger fool says there is a God, and it's me. I'm the autonomous individual. I know it's best for me. I know it's true for me. I know it's real. My opinions on the world and the way that it works, there's no way they could be fallible. I've got it figured out. Maybe, adults, we don't really grow out of that tendency that we lecture children about. Maybe that seed... The desire to be God, that pride, that autonomous individualism is buried deep in the recesses of our mind, and there is a pattern of thinking that we've been exposed to and that we utilize day in and day out without ever realizing it. And maybe in order to be transformed, to think according to a renewed mind, maybe we need a new pattern to look to and a new example to follow. And praise God, that's exactly what we've been given in Jesus Christ. There's this passage in Philippians chapter 2 I go to all the time because it never ceases to challenge me in so many different ways and fronts. We'll read just a portion of it. It's verse 6 through 8. It's talking about Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, or if you have an older translation, something to be grasped something to be held on to tight-fistedly. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So we have in this picture, let's say, ourselves. We have this tendency to pretend we're God, to want to be God, to throw off divine authority and to live our own truth, our own reality, that autonomous individualism. In Jesus, we have somebody who actually was God, as our passage reminds. In very nature, divine, all of the independence, all of the authority, all of his validity, all of it wrapped up in that term. He was the one and only one who could say, I define truth and reality for what it is. And yet he didn't use that authority and that freedom for his own advantage. He didn't hold on to it tight-fistedly. Rather, he humbled himself. He humbled himself to the authority and the will of the Father. And not even like a little bit, but quite a bit. Humbled himself to becoming a human. Humbling himself to become a servant. Humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross. Utter and utmost humility demonstrated before this ultimate authority. And in doing so, Jesus didn't miss out on anything. Actually, the passage goes on to say, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. The utmost reward, the utmost satisfaction, the utmost pleasure and joy became his because of the utmost humility beneath an ultimate authority. Maybe there's a lesson in there for us. That instead of trying to be the autonomous individual who says, I define truth, I define what's right, I define what's real, maybe in humbling ourselves before the actual creator and sustainer through who, for, in whom and for whom all things were made, maybe in humbling ourselves before him, that's where we find this ultimate satisfaction 
and joy and peace and reward. That seems to be what the author and creator of our salvation experienced. Maybe that's the pattern, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, that we're supposed to follow. Jesus saved us from ourselves, not so that we could indulge ourselves or worship ourselves, but so that we could honor God more fully as we were created to do. The renewal of our minds, it begins with this journey of humility. If we were to take a next step, I'd say take that phrase, I know what the Bible says, but I think, and let's flip that on its head for a minute. Because there's so many days and so many times and instances in life where we're tempted to say, well, I think, blah, 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 or I think this is the best course, or I think this is the right way to handle it, or I think these people are right, or these people are wrong, or whatever. Maybe instead we say, I know what I think, but the Bible says, or God says, and we stop and we listen to what the ultimate authority, the objective creator of all things has to say about that heart or that mind or that action. And we slow down and we think, what does my God, my Savior, my King have to say about this? And then we humble ourselves and honor that the way Jesus did. And before we open our mouths and we speak, we ask, you know, maybe what would He say here? Or before we dirty our hands and we get involved and we do something, maybe we ask, what, what, what does He have to say about this? And maybe we humble ourselves beneath His will. Just try it out for a little bit and see how our thinking begins to change, how our peace begins to change. Our satisfaction in life begins to change when we find our rightful place, not worshiping ourselves, trying to be God like Eve in the garden, but honoring and worshiping God the way He created us to. That's a journey. And it's one I think that's worth embarking upon if we want to experience this renewal in the way that we think. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today, for the lens of truth that you give us in your word. And sometimes it's a lot to swallow and digest because we live in a world that is complicated and entangled and we are deeply enmeshed with it. But it's my hope and my prayer that through this series, you would begin to detangle our hearts, that you begin to give clarity to our minds. And it would start here with our recognition of who's really in control. And I pray that we wouldn't just speak that confession, but that we would honor that in our meditations and in our thoughts and our views and opinions and our words and our relationships. We would live like you have ultimate authority, that we would believe and be convicted. Your ways matter, and your word matters, and your truth is binding and unwavering. And that those convictions would take root in our lives. We begin to open our eyes and see the goodness and the glory of your truth. That we would see the blessing of obedience. That we would taste and experience the satisfaction that comes from being people who worship you instead of trying to worship ourselves. So humble us, Father. Let us not try to be autonomous individuals, but be dependent individuals upon you and your grace and your mercy and your ways. Lead us and guide us in this journey, in this endeavor, and this journey. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.